0: Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Friedkin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs. Reviving my old sax and the cinema segment on Chicago Radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence. Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview. British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We continue our series with The straight-talking Arthur Penn. Duck and cover Luke Skywalker fans. There's nothing more pathetic than the level of emotion in films like Star Wars, Penn says in our 1985 chat. It's just pathetic. Coming from the director of the certified American masterpiece, Bonnie and Clyde, those words are not so easily dismissed. But he himself was on the receiving end of some harsh criticism when Bonnie and Clyde was written off by the New York Times as a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy in a review that newspaper is still trying to live down. Nearly 20 years later, Penn was in Chicago being feeded by the Chicago Film Festival with Bonnie and Clyde among its offerings. But this intellectually driven director worn down by money driven Hollywood was not resting on any laurels. He openly admitted that his latest film, Target, starring Gene Hackman as a former CIA operative tracking down his abducted son, was not one of my serious pictures, but a picture I made in order to make something else. In our conversation. Penn reflects on what were his serious pictures, including Little Big Man, a satirical Vietnam-themed allegory in which Dustin Hoffman is raised by Indians, Night Moves, a superb psychological thriller starring Gene Hackman as a private eye, and of course, Bonnie and Clyde. I begin by asking him about that nasty critical response to the film.
1: I remember Roger Ebert gave it a, you know, a, a, a glowing review and that, in some sense, seemed to get the ball. When it first came out, was there not attention paid to it and then at one point it became... You no, know, there was
2: negative attention. Negative By attention. Roger at the New York Times, dumped on it. But he didn't just dump on it. I mean, he just didn't stop. He was obsessed. <laughs> he attacked. He, was, he, was, he had been writing a series about violence and and there along comes Bobby and Clyde so he writes his review and dumps on it. Then on Sunday he writes this enormous page after page and dumps it on it. And um, Joe Morgenstern on Newsweek gave it a bad review one week and then the next week changed the review. I mean, it was a very uh, forthcoming and kind of immense mens-like thing to do which was to say, you know, that we get this magazine Peter theater review and I was uh, said this and thus and so and, and I regret to say I wrote it I now have seen the film again and I would like to rescind that review and say huh. and it was wow. it was terrific I mean it had never happened before so that was one of the films. I think it was Ebert in, in Chicago who was great was a but the thing more than anything was It was a a film that was not going to be quieted. No matter what they wrote in the New York Times, they got many more letters. So that what happened in the New York Times for about three months was this endless exchange between Bosley Crother and people writing letters saying, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a great film. This is a film. And and it just went on and on and on. And it eventually
1: cost Bosley Brother his channel. I guess the French were were quick to uh, recognize. Well,
2: uh, you know uh, everybody. By the time mm-hmm. that picture was seen anywhere, it was no. But it was really, it was really the kids in the street who saw that movie, who then started lining up in front of the theaters, and and the oh, the exhibitors were going crazy because they, had, because Warner Brothers, who was distributing it, hadn't liked the movie, so they had booked it for split weeks, and that. so here was a guy on forty. 7th, 8th Street with a big movie theater, 48th and Broadway. And that Bonnie and Clyde booked in there lines, and he's got to take the picture out because he's already made a little book oh, and yeah, another yeah, picture. Yeah. And he was crazy, <coughs> and the lines were showing up at midnight, two in the morning. They'd never had anything like that. People wanted to see that movie. then at that point, it was just nostalgia. It was going. Then by the time it went to Europe, Warren and I got off the plane. We went over to Europe to England to publicize. Somebody said, "We're going to take you to a party." And so we went to a party, and everybody at the party was dressed funny and Everybody—I mean, you couldn't believe it. We got the Paris Bonnie and Everywhere. fashion magazines. It had just taken off.
1: It seems like maybe when your films were, were most commercially successful was a period of. Great self-examination, um, and I'm wondering if maybe we've gotten away from that kind of thing recently, wh- and whether that would jive with it. More I think
2: that's more. probably true. I think I think certainly during the '60s we were all examining our heritage. You know, I think we were all examining how we had gotten ourselves into this, into that state, and what kind of people we wanted to be, and what kind of country we wanted to be. And you know, it was it was a real search for new lifestyles. And people were then examining myths and, and discounting myths. I think the seventies were really pretty boring in terms of, of, of that kind of self examination. I think I think people stopped looking inside and I think that's when the creatures from outer space came in. And they took over, and it was no longer an examination of ourselves. It was now an out-of-body, out-of-mind experience that we were going to be concerned with. And, and really, human emotion fell by the wayside as being too, too terribly small. Mm-hmm. I, there's nothing more pathetic than the level of emotion in films like Star Wars, you know? Just pathetic. There's there's better emotion in Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Even Spielberg in, in, in Close Encounters did, did some very nice work. But but for for the most part, the 70s really were pretty dull, except for a few guys. Altman, you know, with Nashville, Scorsese. Taxi driver, but I think uh, both Kubrick and I, for instance, found ourselves a little bit up on dry land there. So, what do you do when that happens? Well,
1: you maybe take a shot or two at it, and don't don't succeed, and then you kind of wait it out. But do you, do you, so? It's a matter of waiting it out versus rethinking the whole.
2: Well, it's it. It would be nice if I could rethink it and say, oh, I got the perfect out of out of mm-hmm. space movie. I didn't. I didn't have one, and I don't think you had one. Uh, he tried it with the show but it didn't. It, it, I think you find yourself just a little out of time.
1: But but if you live long enough and endure,
2: it's going to come back around again.
1: The sweeping quality to so so many of your films uh, of just trying to figure out who we are and and. You know, where we come from is that does that come from any place or what or do you I mean do you think of it in those terms or are yeah. other people telling you well these fit together like this
2: Yeah, I think it's other people telling me it fits together like this. I just I really just read a lot and 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 then get a a click. Something says oh there's a story here. there's a film. Here. Okay, I mean that's that's how Little Big Man came about. I was actually working on another film about the Indians Mm. and and then I read a review in the New York Times of this book and I asked my secretary to get a copy of it and she said oh my god Thomas Berger he's an old friend of mine so we we called up Berger this was about six months after the book was published to no particular response and I read it and I Oh boy, this is the movie I've been trying to figure out how to make. And so, uh-huh. bing, that was it. But it was not, it, So there's a kind of, there is an appetite for it, but it, it may not be that particularized. And then mm-hmm. along comes a book that just answers the need, and you put the two together and say, yeah, now I've got it. Now I've got what I want to do. Hmm.
1: It's just interesting that the TV generation of directors, you went... Mulligan and uh, Alan Bakula, um, Matt, Prickin- Matt I mean they seem I don't know, maybe there's something Jewish too about some of this in, in addressing issues of immigration and issues of you know, melting pot things. And, sure, you
2: know. sure, But it's not just Jewish. Yeah. I think it's it's immigrant. I think it's because Kazan did it with America America. I mean yeah. that's always been one of the big themes of his life is being He was born in America. Greece, Turkey, somewhere in there. But I, I think those of us who can remember having either immigrant parents or having been ourselves immigrants, my, my parents were immigrants, that whole kind of wide eyed feeling of America is still there. You know? and I'm, I still wake up every once
1: astonished land with the mm. amazing. Well, the whole thing goes hand-in-hand with the father-son thing, which really, I mean, just about every movie, at least three-quarters of the movies you've made have had strong, have really grappled with the whole uh, Four Friends most visibly, but sure. I, mean, I mean... Left-handed gun. Left-handed right. gun, yeah. fucking freudian yeah. father yeah. thing. Um, Gene Hackman in, in Night Moves was having problems with his relationship with his father. So, I mean, does that to, to to ask the obvious? I mean, does that come out of your you and your father or wrestling? True.
2: Yeah, I mean, I didn't know my father. I just, you know,
1: they, they were divorced. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, mean, I was
2: about fourteen, and then and then he got sick. By the time I was seventeen, which, he was really ill. So. I really had about three years. And, uh, I, I'm sure what all of this is, in, in one form or another, is an extension of the fantasy that we would have had more time together and get to know each other better and,
1: and had a chance to sort of say some things to each other that we never get to say. Yeah, I find uh, my father died when I was young also. Uh, it was very traumatic. Um, and I find my dreams kind of play the same role, I mean, in these oh, a diverse range of roles that he plays, from strong, which he sort of was, to weak, which he wasn't, you know. Yes. It's like trying to re- you know, recreate the whole thing. Sure, sure.
2: And it, it comes up again and again. And, you know, people say to me, uh, in one form or another, you know, what, what, what would you like to do? What well, I don't answer, but what I really would like to do is I'd like to show my father that I really am not as inept and unworthy as he thought I was. You know? That's really what I'd like to do. Yeah. But I'll never get a chance to do that. So I live out
1: certain other things through my son.
2: And I'm sure I'll create just as many problems for him as life is created for me.
1: Well, you and I, I mean, there's also the element of that when our fathers died, we had not yet reached even a day when we could address them as adult to adult. So, yeah. It leaves you then with all that compacted
2: uh, and impacted emotion. It's it's not a subject I like to address frontally. Yeah. I'd rather rather come at it with a kind of obliquity and not make that apparently the main theme of the movie, but for it to be
1: the, the residual. Yeah, well, it's it's. It, I mean, it is pretty apparently the main thing of this of Tar, uh, except
2: that it's embedded in this huge yeah. action
1: environment. Yeah.
2: So, so the action is is in, in itself a
1: kind of character in yeah. itself, You
2: know.
1: Well, from point zero, I mean, you walk into a room and there's Matt Dillon and there's Gene Hackman and I'm saying, there's no way that that guy is his father. Right. Uh, obviously, uh, you know commercially it's a good choice, Matt Dillon is high, I and mean, he's, you know, he's a talented kid, um, but is that something that you I mean, how do you how do you make that real? I mean, when the physical, it just seems to me the physical uh, iconology or whatever is really? is,
2: is that far apart? You think? I don't know,
1: I just Did they is. ever
2: get to be close, close enough? Credible enough to you? As Father know?
1: Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, it did. I'm just wondering how that happened. Because in the beginning... Yeah, that, mean, now, well, that's,
2: the, that's the sort of sleight of hand, which is, it is to say, there's no way. No way these guys are. Here. And then, without ever addressing that directly as the, as the center of the movie, have it happen. And I think that comes out of sharing either jeopardy or loss Or, you know, I mean, when we go through some of the basic rituals of life, or birth, these these are enormously bonding events, Mm -hmm. and and it's possible, you know, to live, to live life without, with very few of those, you, I mean, you, I would be terrible to put it in this way, but you had the privilege of losing your father, which is a very deeply bonding issue, as, as, as it was in my case different from, let us say, just kids who grew up and, you know, Mm -hmm. and life went along in a kind of parallel form. But those, those harsh, painful turns of life, and most particularly intergenerational, are, are the ones that are the most telling, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all grow up with adolescent sexual problems and worries, and you know, will I, she will she ever put out? Will I ever get to to be uh, comfortable mm-hmm. with a girl? You know, any of that all, all that that will all come together somehow. That that's age appropriate. The other one is not age appropriate, although in, in fact, but I mean. It never feels age like it, It feels like, I'm never going to know that person. I'm never going to know my mother. I'm
1: never going to know my father. I'm there, certainly. never going to know me. Mm. Well, and and the premature death, in a way, and maybe we feel guilty about accepting this, if it, if it does free you to become yourself earlier than it would have been the case otherwise. Mm.
2: And that's yeah. what... In this, if, if, if there's something of theatrical in this point, it is that we substitute danger for that. Instead of really having a loss of the Father, yeah, you know, have that's the that's danger true. of the loss of the Father. Mm-hmm. And the danger of
1: the loss of the Father is meant as a maturing uh, environment for the Son. And that seems to me to leave what you may not see as an abstract moment, but which struck me strongly at the end when the building is blowing up in the background and this family is like gleeful um, i mean if you were if you were to put this in real in realistic terms, okay, these, these people have just been through this ordeal and this, these two people have just been killed, all this horribleness they might not be celebrating, but yet what you're saying now it's it's like that release of. I mean, it's a, it's a strong moment. I'm not sure how exactly. Yeah, and moment. it's
2: bothered a number of people. I know it has bothered a number of people. It's a kind of apocalyptic moment, and maybe it doesn't uh, sit well with, with, with everybody, but it's meant to say, listen, we survived. And, and I think that... I don't know. That's the way I would react. Mm. How would react? I mean, I react that way when my when somebody in my family goes through a dangerous apparition. Uh, I'm euphoric no. for, for, for days. Uh, Matt, on the other hand, plays a different attitude in that last scene. He, he has a moment where he goes off by himself and looks at the flames. Oh, and yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah, I think he yeah. conveys a kind of
1: concern. Yeah. Well, Target seems to be, at least in some ways, a departure. Um, and we can talk about uh, kind of myth quality to a lot of your work, and a sense of just this country. I mean, there's there's a real feeling of Americanism in, in a lot of the film yeah. This one is not only set abroad, but it has it's it's a genre picture, but it, it's it seems more um, it's kind of self-contained. Yeah, you know, no, it's lacking idea. in that sort of american particularity.
2: Should I say it's not one of my serious pictures. It's it's a picture I did I made in order to make some money. Uh-huh. I mean I want the picture to be successful. That's really what I want. I want it to make money at the box office. I want it to be a good entertainment. And uh and I'll I'll forego all the, a lot of the other values that, that that people may expect from my work. Um Everyone's along. There comes a time in everybody's life, it seems to me, when when you got to do the
1: commercial work mm-hmm. in, order, in order to support the other work. Well, Four Friends must have been very disappointed for you. It was. It was terribly disappointing.
2: And I would have thought, well, you know, maybe I'm crazy or it's a lousy picture or whatever. Except that the picture played so well in Europe, mm-hmm. so well, that, that obviously I, I don't think I'm crazy. I think it was. It was much more a case of American financing. I mean, I think the company went broke. Any company that makes blowout and poor friends and thinks that they're going to bail that, that yeah. company out is crazy. I mean, that's those are not the kind of movies that are going to save a company. They just aren't. Uh, so and then it becomes much more profitable to the companies to have a huge tax loss than it is to try to sell a movie. Mm-hmm. But Fox picked that, picked that movie up for $2 million, and they made a lot of money on it around the world, a lot
0: of money. Well, it
1: seems among other things that, uh, that you bring to, to your films, uh, there's, there's kind of a literary quality that is, has become, uh, obviously, less and less a selling point. Um, literary properties now, just adaptations of books, if they're not uh, Robert Ludlum or something, have mm-hmm. fallen. You know, look at that Ann Beatty book they did, The uh, yeah. Chili Scenes of Winter. I mean, you can't really... I'm sure people come up with commercial properties, but the sort well, of thing him. that you do, it's real... And, and, and just the sensibility itself must be harder to... Uh...
2: It's hard. It's hard. I was talking to Griffin Dunn the uh, other day,
1: too, at that same luncheon.
2: The job now for somebody like that is to put together your own picture. Make them mm-hmm. for inexpensive sums, and do it that way. And mm-hmm. <coughs> they were lucky to get Scorsese because Scorsese was just coming off a big disappointment of not being able to make the Last mm-hmm. Temptation. Right. and was looking desperately for something to do, and they, they got him, and he did it, and uh, did it very well. Yeah, but uh. To picture the the board, you know. We're gonna right. have to find a way to do that. Yeah.
1: We're all gonna have to find a way to do that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as the time elapsed, the function of, of the problem—I mean, between the, the last film and this one—you just or you—you gen—I you, mean, you, you used to turn out films more frequently, did you not? Not
2: so much now. No. I mean, it was usually a three or four-year break, yeah. Um well, so many things have changed in the world of, of films. film. VCR has changed mm. the entire uh, possible now to have a, you know relative piece of junk uh, show up in a movie theater, go on the VCR, and and you know bail it can bail you out. And it's going to be it's going to be increasingly the case that I think. It doesn't have to be a piece of junk. It can be a good little film yeah. that eventually, however, has to play in the theaters. And that's, for the moment, the rub. That's the big problem. Because you can make a film for say three or four million dollars, but then it's going to cost three or four million dollars to release it. And suddenly it's an eight million dollar film, and you can't get eight million dollars back out of know, You can get some part of that back. Mm-hmm. Much, you know.
1: Yeah. Do you ever uh, um, kind of are you ever in the best possible light uh, are a recipient of the kind of Citizen cane itis that, that they always hit wells with in terms of Bonnie and Clyde being this great achievement and that you haven't lived up to that since then I mean is that ever uh, I
2: suspect although not many people have said it to my face I no. suspect that is
1: probably true um, do you consider it your your best uh, achievement no I wouldn't say
2: I don't have that kind of favorite, favorite I think Brian Clark came along in a marvelous moment it was the right moment to make that movie and it was lucky a terrific producer in the world. they had a wonderful mm-hmm. look the joanniness the use of music all of those things came together in a very unusual way and certainly the the techniques the use of the camera techniques in the film. But that, that was all, a large part of that was kind of accidental. Who would have thought that we were on the edge of a generation of moviegoers who were so perceptive about camera and camera techniques, you know? But we were. And suddenly people were writing about it in, in the popular press as if it were a matter of household concern that, that this was slowed down to 48 frames and this was 96 frames. And, I mean, it was amazing absolutely amazing to me that there was that kind of interest
0: in the techniques. You've been listening to a conversation with the great American director Arthur Penn. Thanks to Rick Riggs and Handwritten Recording Studio for the production work and Jeff Bradfield for the music. In our next podcast, I'll chat with Bill Forsythe, who put Scottish cinema on the map with films including Local Hero. Join me. I'm Lloyd Sachs.